Section 26 of the Exemplary Novels of Miguel de Cervantes Saavedra. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mary Herndon Bell. The Exemplary Novels by Miguel de Cervantes Saavedra. Translated by Walter K. Kelly. The Illustrious Scullery Maid, Part Two. The musicians departed at the approach of dawn. Avendano and Cariazzo returned to their room, where one of them slept till morning. They then rose, both of them eager to see Costanza, but the one only from curiosity, the other from love. Both were gratified, for Costanza came out of her master's room looking so lovely that they both felt that all the praises bestowed on her by the muleteer fell immeasurably short of her deserts. She was dressed in a green bodice and petticoat, trimmed with the same color. A collar embroidered with black silk set off the alabaster whiteness of her neck. The thick tresses of her bright chestnut hair were bound up with white ribbon. She had pendants in her ears, which seemed to be pearls, but were only glass. Her girdle was a St. Francis cord and a large bunch of keys hung at her side. When she came out of the room she crossed herself and made a profound reverence with great devotion to an image of Our Lady that hung on one of the walls of the quadrangle. Then looking up and seeing the two young men intently gazing on her, she immediately retired again into the room, and called thence to Arguello to get up. Cariazzo, it must be owned, was much struck by Costanza's beauty he admired it as much as his companion only he did not fall in love with her on the contrary he had no desire to spend another night in the inn but to set out at once for the fisheries la arguello presently appeared in the gallery with two young women natives of galicia who were also servants in the inn for the number employed in the saviano was considerable that being one of the best and most frequented houses of its kind in toledo at the same time, the servants of the persons lodging in the inn began to assemble to receive oats for their master's beasts, and the host dealt them out, all the while grumbling and swearing at his maid-servants, who had been the cause of his losing the services of a capital hostler, who did the work so well, and kept such good reckoning, that he did not think he had ever lost the price of a grain of oats by him. Avendano, who heard all this, seized the opportunity at once. "'Don't fatigue yourself, signor host,' he said. "'Give me the account-book, and whilst I remain here I will give out the oats, and keep such an exact count of it that you will not miss the hostler who you say has left you.' "'Truly, I thank you for the offer, my lad,' said the host, "'for I have no time to attend to this business. I have too much to do, both indoors and out of doors. Come down, and I will give you the book, and mind ye.' these muleteers are the very devil and will do you out of a peck of oats under your very nose with no more conscience than if it were so much chaff avendano went down to the quadrangle took the book and began to serve out pecks of oats like water and to note them down with such exactness that the landlord who stood watching him was greatly pleased with his performance i wish to god he said your master would not come and that you would make up your mind to stop with me you would lose nothing by the change, believe me. The hostler who has just quitted me came here eight months ago all in tatters, 
and as lean as a shotten herring, and now he has two very good suits of clothes, and is as fat as a dormouse. For you must know, my son, that in this house there are excellent veils to be got over and above the wages. If I should stop, replied Avendano, I should not stand out much for the matter of what I should gain, but should be content with very little for sake of being in this city, which they tell me is the best in Spain. At least it is one of the best and most plentiful, said the host. But we are in want of another thing, too, and that is a man to fetch water, for the lad that used to attend to that job has also left me. He was a smart fellow, and with the help of a famous ass of mine, he used to keep all the tanks overflowing and make a lake of the house. One of the reasons why the muleteers like to bring their employers to my house is that they always find plenty of water in it for their beasts instead of having to drive them down to the river. Carriazzo, who had been listening to this dialogue, and who saw Avendano already installed in office, thought he would follow his example, well knowing how much it would gratify him. Out with the ass, Signor host, he said. I'm your man, and will do your work as much to your satisfaction as my comrade. Aye, indeed, said Avendano. My comrade, Lope Asturiano, will fetch water like a prince. I'll go bail for him. La Arguello, who had been all the while within earshot, here put in her word. And pray, my gentleman, said she to Avendano, who is to go bail for you? By my faith, you look to me as if you wanted someone to answer for you, instead of you answering for another. Hold your tongue, Arguello, said her master. Don't put yourself forward where you're not wanted. I'll go bail for them, both of them. And mind, I tell you, that none of you women meddle or make with the men-servants, for it is through you they all leave me. So these two chaps are engaged, are they? said another of the servant-women. By my soul, if I had to keep them company, I would never trust them with the wine-bag. None of your jibes, Signora Gallega, cried her master. Do your work, and don't meddle with the men-servants, or I'll baste you with stick. Oh, to be sure, replied the Galatian damsel. Ain't they dainty dears to make a body's mouth water? I'm sure master has never known me so frolicsome with the chaps in the house, nor yet out of it, that he should have such an opinion of me. The blackguards go away when they take it into their heads, without our giving them any occasion. Very like, indeed. They're the right sort to be in need of any one's putting them to bidding their masters an early good morning when they least expect it. You've a deal to say for yourself, my friend, said the landlord. Shut your mouth and mind your business. While this colloquy was going on, Carriazzo had harnessed the ass, jumped on his back, and set off to the river, leaving Avendano highly delighted at witnessing his jovial resolution. Here, then, we have Avendano and Carriazzo changed, God save the mark, into Tomas Pedro, a hostler, and Lope Asturiano, a water-carrier. Transformations surpassing those of the long-nosed poet. No sooner had La Arguello heard that they were hired than she formed a design upon Asturiano and marked him for her own, resolving to regale him in such a manner that if he were ever so shy, she would make him as pliant as a glove. The prudish Gallegan formed a similar design upon Avendano, and as the two women were great friends, being much together in their business by day, 
and bedfellows at night, they at once confided their amorous purposes to each other, and that night they determined to begin the conquest of their two unimpassioned swains. Moreover, they agreed that they must, in the first place, beg them not to be jealous about anything they might see them do with their persons, for girls could hardly regale their friends within doors, unless they put those without under contribution. "'Hold your tongues, lad,' said they, apostrophizing their absent lovers. "'Hold your tongues and shut your eyes. Leave the timbrel in the hands that can play it, and let those lead the dance that know how.' and no pair of cannons in this city will be better regaled than you will be by our two selves. While the Gallegan and La Arguello were settling matters in this way, our good friend Lope Asturiano was on his way to the river, musing upon his beloved tunny fisheries, and on his sudden change of condition. Whether it was for this reason, or that fate ordained it so, it happened that as he was riding down a steep and narrow lane, he ran against another water-carrier's ass, which was coming laden uphill, and as his own was fresh and lively and in good condition, the poor, half-starved, jaded brute that was toiling uphill was knocked down. The pitchers were broken, and the water spilled. The driver of the fallen ass, enraged by this disaster, immediately flew upon the offender, and pommeled him soundly before poor Lope well knew where he was. At last his senses were roused with a vengeance, and seizing his antagonist with both hands by the throat, he dashed him to the ground. That was not all, for unluckily the man's head struck violently against a stone. The wound was frightful, and bled so profusely that Lope thought he had killed him. Several other water-carriers who were on their way to and from the river, seeing their comrade so maltreated, seized Lope and held him fast, shouting, Justice! justice this water-carrier has murdered a man and all the while they beat and thumped him lustily others ran to the fallen man and found that his skull was cracked and that he was almost at the last gasp the outcry spread all up the hill into the plaza del carmen where it reached the ears of an alguazil who flew to the spot with two police runners they did not arrive a moment too soon for they found Lope surrounded by more than a score of water-carriers, who were basting his ribs at such a rate that there was almost as much reason to fear for his life as that of the wounded man. The alguazil took him out of their hands, delivered him and his ass into those of his followers, had the wounded man laid like a sack upon his own ass, and marched them all off to prison, attended by such a crowd that they could hardly make way through the streets. The noise drew Tomas Pedro and his master to the door, and to their great surprise they saw Asturiano led by in the grip of two police-runners, with his face all bloody. The landlord immediately looked about for his ass, and saw it in the hands of another catch-pole, who had joined the Aguazil's party. He inquired the cause of these captures, was told what had happened, and was sorely distressed on account of his ass, fearing that he should lose it or have to pay more for it than it was worth. Tomas followed his comrade, but could not speak a single word to him. Such was the throng around the prisoner, and the strictness of the catch-poles. Lope was thrust into a narrow cell in the prison, with a doubly grated window, and the wounded man was taken to the infirmary, where the surgeon pronounced his case extremely dangerous. The alguazil took home the two asses with him, 
besides five pieces of eight which had been found on Lope. Tomas returned greatly disconcerted to the inn, where he found the landlord in no better spirits than himself, and gave him an account of the condition in which he had left his comrade, the danger of the wounded man, and the fate of the ass. To add to the misfortune, said he, I have just met a gentleman of Burgos, who tells me that my master will not now come this way. In order to make more speed and shorten his journey by two leagues, he has crossed the ferry at Aseca. He will sleep to-night at Orgaz, and has sent me twelve crowns, with orders to meet him at Seville. But that cannot be, for it is not in reason that I should leave my friend and comrade in prison and in such peril. My master must excuse me for the present, and I know he will, for he is so good-natured that he will put up with a little inconvenience, rather than that I should forsake my comrade. Will you do me the favour, signor, to take this money, and see what you can do in this business? While you are spending this, I will write to my master for more, telling him all that has happened, and I am sure he will send us enough to get us out of any scrape. The host opened his eyes a palm wide in glad surprise to find himself indemnified for the loss of his ass. He took the money and comforted Tomas, telling him that he could make interest with persons of great influence in Toledo, especially a nun, a relation of the Corregidor's, who could do anything she pleased with him. Now the washerwoman of the convent in which the nun lived had a daughter, who was very thick indeed, with the sister of a friar, who was hand in glove with the said nun's confessor. All he had to do then was to get the washerwoman to ask her daughter, to get the monk's sister, to speak to her brother, to say a good word to the confessor, who would prevail on the nun to write a note to the corregidor, begging him to look into Lope's business. And then, beyond a doubt, they might expect to come off with flying colors. That is, provided the water-carrier did not die of his wound, and provided also there was no lack of stuff to grease the palms of all the officers of justice. For unless they are well greased, they creak worse than the wheels of a bullock-cart. Whatever Tomas thought of this roundabout way of making interest, he failed not to thank the innkeeper and to assure him that he was confident his master would readily send the requisite money. Arguello, who had seen her new flame in the hands of the officers, ran directly to the prison with some dinner for him, but she was not permitted to see him. This was a great grief to her, but she did not lose her hopes for all that. After the lapse of a fortnight, the wounded man was out of danger, and in a week more the surgeon pronounced him cured. During this time Tomas Pedro pretended to have had fifty crowns sent to him from Seville, and taking them out of his pocket, he presented them to the innkeeper, along with a fictitious letter from his master. It was nothing to the landlord whether the letter was genuine or not, so he gave himself no trouble to authenticate it. But he received the fifty good gold crowns with great glee. The end of the matter was that the wounded man was quieted with six ducats, and Asturiano was sentenced to the forfeiture of his ass, and a fine of ten ducats with costs, on the payment of which he was liberated. On his release from prison, Asturiano had no mind to go back to Saviano, but excused himself to his comrade on the ground that during his confinement he had been visited by Arguello, who had pestered him with her fulsome advances, which were to him so sickening and insufferable that he would rather be hanged than comply with the desires of so odious a jade. 
his intention was to buy an ass and to do business as a water-carrier on his own account as long as they remained in toledo this would protect him from the risk of being arrested as a vagabond besides it was a business he could carry on with great ease and satisfaction to himself since with only one load of water he could saunter about the city all day long looking at silly wenches looking at beautiful women you mean said his friend for of all the cities in spain toledo has the reputation of being that in which the women surpass all others whether in beauty or conduct if you doubt it only look at costanza who could spare from her superfluity of loveliness charms enough to beautify the rest of the women not only of toledo but of the whole world gently signor tomas not so fast with your praises of the signora scullion unless you wish that besides thinking you a fool i take you for a heretic into the bargain do you call costanza a scullion brother lope god forgive you and bring you to a true sense of your error and is she not a scullion i have yet to see her wash the first plate what does that matter if you have seen her wash the second or the fiftieth i tell you brother she does not wash dishes or do anything but look after the business of the house and take care of the plate of which there is a great deal how is it then that throughout the whole city they call her the illustrious scullery maid if so be she does not wash dishes perhaps it is because she washes silver and not crockery that they give her that name but to drop this subject tell me tomas how stand your hopes in a state of perdition for during the whole time you were in jail i never have been able to say one word to her it is true that to all that is said to her by the guests in the house she makes no other reply than to cast down her eyes and keep her lips closed such is her virtue and modesty so that her modesty excites my love no less than her beauty but it is almost too much for my patience to think that the corregidor's son who is an impetuous and somewhat licentious youth is dying for her a night seldom passes but he serenades her and that so openly that she is actually named in the song sung in her praise she never hears them to be sure nor ever quits her mistress's room from the time she retires until morning but in spite of all that my heart cannot escape being pierced by the keen shaft of jealousy what do you intend to do then with this portia this minerva this new penelope who under the form of a scullery maid has vanquished your heart her name is costanza not portia minerva or penelope that she is a servant in an inn i cannot deny but what can i do if as it seems the occult force of destiny and the deliberate choice of reason both impel me to adore her look you friend i cannot find words to tell you how love exalts and glorifies in my eyes this humble scullery maid as you call her so that though seeing her low condition i am blind to it and knowing it i ignore it try as i may it is impossible for me to keep it long before my eyes for that thought is at once obliterated by her beauty her grace her virtue and modesty which tell me that beneath that plebeian husk must be concealed some kernel of extraordinary worth in short be it what it may i love her and not with that commonplace love i have felt for others but with a passion so pure 
that it knows no wish beyond that of serving her, and prevailing on her to love me, and return in the like kind what is due to my honourable affection. Here Lope gave a shout, and cried out in declamatory tone, O oh, platonic love! O oh, illustrious scullery maid! O oh, thrice-blessed age of ours, wherein we see love renewing the marvels of the age of gold! O oh, my poor tunnies! You must pass this year without a visit from your impassioned admirer. But next year, be sure, I will make amends, and you shall no longer find me a truant. I see, Asturiano, said Tomas, how openly you mock me. Why don't you go to your fisheries? There is nothing to hinder you. I will remain where I am, and you will find me here on your return. If you wish to take your share of the money with you, take it at once. Go your ways in peace, and let each of us follow the course prescribed to him by his own destiny. I thought you had more sense, said Lope. Don't you know that I was only joking? But now that I perceive you are in earnest, I will serve you in earnest in everything I can do to please you. Only one thing I entreat, in return for the many I intend to do for you. Do not expose me to Arguello's persecution, for I would rather lose your friendship than have to endure hers. Good God, friend! Her tongue goes like the clapper of a mill. You can smell her breath a league off. All her front teeth are false and it is my private opinion that she does not wear her own hair but a wig. To crown all, since she began to make overtures to me, she has taken to painting white, till her face looks like nothing but a mask of plaster. True, indeed, my poor comrade, she is worse even than the Gallegan, who makes me suffer martyrdom. I'll tell you what we shall do. Only stay this night in the inn, and to-morrow you shall buy yourself an ass, find a lodging, and so secure yourself from the importunities of Arguello, whilst I remain exposed to those of the Gallegan and to the fire of my Costanza's eyes. Thus being agreed on, the two friends returned to the inn, where Asturiano was received with great demonstrations of love by Arguello. That night a great number of muleteers stopping in the house, and those near it, got up a dance before the door of the Sevillano. Asturiano played the guitar. The female dancers were the two Gallegans and Arguello, and three girls from another inn. Many persons stood by as spectators, with their faces muffled, prompted more by a desire to see Costanza than the dance. But they were disappointed, for she did not make an appearance. Asturiano played for the dancers with such spirit and precision of touch that they all vowed he made the guitar speak. But just as he was doing his best, accompanying the instrument with his voice, and the dancers were capering like mad, one of the muffled spectators cried out, Stop, you drunken sot! Hold your noise, wine-skin, piperly poet, miserable cat-gut scraper! Several others followed up this insulting speech with such a torrent of abuse that Lope thought it best to cease playing and singing. But the muleteers took the interruption so much amiss that had it not been for the earnest endeavors of the landlord to appease them, there would have been a terrible row. In spite, indeed, of all he could do, the muleteers would not have kept their hands quiet had not the watch happened just then to come up and clear the ground. A moment afterwards, the ears of all who were awake in the quarter were greeted by an admirable voice proceeding from a man who had seated himself on a stone opposite the door of the Sevillano. 
Everyone listened with rapt attention to his song, but none more so than Tomas Pedro, to whom every word sounded like a sentence of excommunication, for the romance ran thus. In what celestial realms of space is hid that beauteous, witching face? Where shines that star which, boding ills, my trembling heart with torment fills? Why, in its wrath, should heaven decree that we no more its light should see? Why bid that sun no longer cheer with glorious beams our drooping sphere? Yes, second sun, tis true you shine, but not for us, with light divine. Yet gracious come from ocean's bed, why hide from us your radiant head? Constance, a faithful dying swain, adores your beauty, though in vain. For when his love he would impart, you fly and scorn his proffered heart. Oh, let his tears your pity sway, and quick he'll bear you hence away. For shame it is this sordid place, should do your charms such foul disgrace. Here you're submissive to control, sweet mistress of my doting soul. But altars youths to you should raise, and passion votaries sound your praise. Quit then a scene which must consume unworthily your early bloom. To my soft vows your ear incline, nor frown, but be forever mine. His gladsome torch let Hymen light, and let the God our hearts unite. This day would then, before its end, see me your husband, lover, friend. The last line was immediately followed by the flight of two brickbats, which fell close to the singer's feet. But had they come in contact with his head, they would certainly have knocked all the music and poetry out of it. The poor frightened musician took to his heels with such speed that a greyhound could not have caught him. Unhappy fate of night-birds to be always subject to such showers. All who had heard the voice of the fugitive admired it, but most of all Tomas Pedro, only he would rather the words have not been addressed to Costanza, although she had not heard one of them. The only person who found fault with the romance was a muleteer nicknamed Barabbas. As soon as this man saw the singer run off, he bawled after him, There you go, you Judas of a troubadour. May the fleas eat your eyes out. Who the devil taught you to sing to a scullery maid about celestial realms and spheres and ocean beds, and to call her stars and suns and all the rest of it? If you had told her she was as straight as asparagus, as white as milk, as modest as a lay brother in his novitiate, more full of humors, and as unmanageable as a hired mule, and harder than a lump of dry mortar, why then she would have understood you and been pleased. But your fine words are fitter for a scholar than for a scullery maid. Truly, there are poets in the world who write songs that the devil himself could not understand. For my part, at least, Barabbas, though I am, I cannot make head or tail of what that fellow has been singing. What did he suppose Costanza could make of them? But she knows better than to listen to such stuff, for she is snug in bed, and cares no more for all these caterwallers than she does for Prester John. This fellow, at least, is not one of the singers belonging to the Corregidor's son, for they are out-and-out out good ones, and a body can generally understand them. But by the Lord, this fellow sets me mad. The bystanders coincided in opinion with Barabbas, 
and thought his criticism very judicious. Everybody now went to bed, but no sooner was the house all still than Lope heard someone calling very softly at his bedroom door. "'Who's there?' said he. "'It is we,' whispered a voice. "'Arguello and the Gallegan. Open the door and let us in, for we are dying of cold.' "'Dying of cold, indeed,' said Lope. "'And we are in the middle of the dog-days.' "'Oh, leave off now, friend Lope.' said the Gallegan. Get up and open the door, for here we are as fine as archduchesses. Archduchesses? And at this hour? I don't believe a word of it, but rather think you must be witches or something worse. Get out of that this moment, or by all that's damnable, if you make me get up, I'll leather you with my belt till your hinder parts are as red as poppies. Finding that he answered them so roughly, and in a manner so contrary to their expectations, the two disappointed damsels returned sadly to their beds, but before they left the door, Arguello put her lips to the keyhole and hissed through it, "'Honey was not made for the mouth of the ass!' And with that, as if she had said something very bitter indeed, and taken adequate revenge on the scorner, she went off to her cheerless bed. "'Look you, Tomas,' said Lope to his companion as soon as they were gone, "'set me to fight two giants.' or to break the jaws of half a dozen, or a whole dozen of lions, if it be requisite for your service, and I shall do it as readily as I would drink a glass of wine, but that you should put me under the necessity of encountering Aguayo, this is what I would never submit to. No, not if I were to be flayed alive. Only think what damsels of Denmark fate has thrown upon us this night. Well, patience. Tomorrow will come, thank God, and then we shall see. I have already told you, friend, replied Tomas, that you may do as you please. Either go on your pilgrimage, or buy an ass and turn water-carrier, as you proposed. I stick to the water-carrying business, said Lope. My mind is made up not to quit you at present. They then went to sleep till daylight, when they rose. Tomas Pedro went to give out oats and Lope set off to the cattle market to buy an ass. Now it happened that Tomas had spent his leisure on holidays in composing some amorous verses, and had jotted them down in the book in which he kept the account of the oats, intending to copy them out fairly, and then blot them out of the book, or tear out the page. But before he had done so, he happened to go out one day, and leave the book on top of the oat bin. His master found it there, and looking into it to see how the account of the oats stood, he lighted upon the verses. Surprised and annoyed, he went off with them to his wife, but before he read them to her, he called Costanza into the room, and peremptorily commanded her to declare whether Tomas Pedro, the hostler, had overmade love to her, or addressed any improper language to her, or any that gave token of his being partial to her. Costanza vowed that Tomas had never yet spoken to her in any such way, nor ever given her reason to suppose that he had any bad thoughts towards her. Her master and mistress believed her, because they had always found her to speak the truth. Having dismissed her, the host turned to his wife and said, I know not what to say of this matter. You must know, Signora, that Tomas has written in this book, in which he keeps the account of the oats, verses that give me an ugly suspicion that he is in love with Costanza. Let me see the verses, said the wife, and I'll tell you what we are to conclude. 
Oh, of course. As you are a poet, you will at once see into his thoughts. I am not a poet, but you very well know that I am a woman of understanding, and that I can say the four prayers in Latin. You would do better to say them in plain Spanish. You know your uncle the priest has told you that you make no end of blunders when you patter your Latin, and that what you say is good for nothing. That was an arrow from his niece's quiver. She is jealous of seeing me take the Latin hours in hand, and make my way through them as easily as though a vineyard after the vintage. Well, have it your own way. Listen now. Here are the verses. And he read some impassioned lines addressed to Costanza. Is there any more? said the landlady. No. But what do you think of these verses? In the first place, we must make sure they are by Tomas. Of that there can be no manner of doubt, for the handwriting is most unquestionably the same as that in which the account of the oats is kept. Look, ye husband, it appears to me that although Costanza is named in the verses, whence it may be supposed that they were made for her, we ought not for that reason to set the fact down for certain, just as if we have seen them written, for there are other Costanzas in the world besides ours. But even supposing they were meant for her, there's not a word in them that could do her discredit. Let us be on the watch and look sharply after the girl, for if he is in love with her, we may be sure he will make more verses and try to give them to her. Would it not be better to get rid of all this bother by turning him out of doors? That is for you to do if you think proper. But really, by your own account, the lad does his work so well that it would go against one's conscience to turn him off upon such slight grounds. Very well. Let us be on the watch, as you say, and, and time will tell us what we have to do. Here the conversation ended, and the landlord carried the book back to the place where he had found it. Tomas returned in great anxiety to look for his book, found it, and that it might not occasion him another fright, he immediately copied out the verses, effaced the original, and made up his mind to hazard a declaration to Costanza upon the first opportunity that should present itself. Her extreme reserve, however, was such that there seemed little likelihood of his finding such an opportunity. Besides, the great concourse of people in the house made it almost impossible that he should have any private conversation with her, to the despair of her unfortunate lover. That day, however, it chanced that Costanza appeared with one cheek muffled, and told someone who asked her the reason that she was suffering from a violent face-ache. Tomas, whose wits were sharpened by his passion, instantly saw how he might avail himself of that circumstance. Signora Costanza, he said, I will give you a prayer in writing, which you have only to recite once or twice, and it will take away your pain forthwith. Give it me, if you please, said Costanza, and I will recite it, for I know how to read. It must be on condition, however, said Tomas, that you do not show it to anybody, for I value it highly, and I should not wish it to lose its charm by being made known to many. I promise you that no person shall see it, but let me have it at once, for I can hardly bear this pain. I will write it out from memory and bring it you immediately. This was the very first conversation that had ever taken place between Tomas and Costanza during all the time he had been in the house, which was nearly a month. 
Tomas withdrew, wrote out the prayer, and found means to deliver it, unseen by anyone else, into Costanza's hand. And she, with great eagerness and with no less devotion, went with it into a room where she shut herself up alone. Then, opening the paper, she read as follows. Lady of my soul, I am a gentleman of Burgos, and if I survive my father, I shall inherit a property of six thousand ducats yearly income. Upon the fame of your beauty, which spreads far and wide, I left my native place, changed my dress, and came in the garb in which you see me to serve your master. If you would consent to be mine, in the way most accordant with your virtue, put me to any proof you please, to convince you of my truth and sincerity. And when you have fully satisfied yourself in this respect, I will, if you consent, become your husband, and the happiest of men. For the present, I only entreat you not to turn such loving and guileless feelings as mine into the street. For if your master, who has no conception of them, should come to know my aspirations, he would condemn me to exile from your presence, and that would be the same thing as sentencing me to death. Suffer me, Signora, to see you until you believe me, considering that he does not deserve the rigorous punishment of being deprived of the sight of you whose only fault has been that he adored you. You can reply to me with your eyes, unperceived by any of the numbers who are always gazing upon you, for your eyes are such that their anger kills, but their compassion gives new life. When Tomas saw that Costanza had gone away to read his letter, he remained with palpitating heart, fearing and hoping either his death doom or the one look that should bid him live. Presently Costanza returned, looking so beautiful in spite of her muffling, that if any extraneous cause could have heightened her loveliness, it might be supposed that her surprise at finding the contents of the letter so widely different from what she had expected had produced that effect. In her hand she held the paper torn into small pieces, and returning the fragments to Tomas, whose legs could hardly bear him up. "'Brother Tomas,' she said, this prayer of yours seems to me to savor more of witchcraft and delusion than of piety. Therefore I do not choose to put faith in it or to use it. I have torn it up that it may not be seen by any one more credulous than myself. Learn other prayers, for it is impossible that this one can ever do you any good. So saying, she returned to her mistress's room, leaving Tomas sorely distressed but somewhat comforted at finding that his secret remained safe, confined to Costanza's bosom. For as she had not yet divulged it to her master, he reckoned that at least he was in no danger of being turned out of doors. He considered also that in having taken the first step, he had overcome mountains of difficulties, for in great and doubtful enterprises the chief difficulty is always in the beginning. End of the Illustrious Scullery Maid Part 2